0: Hi everyone, you're listening to Bush Tech, an ag tech podcast that gets to the so what of ag tech. We'll bring you interesting things from interesting people, and I'm one of your co-hosts, Simon Mathewson. And I'm your other co-host, Sarah Nolette. On this podcast, we will bring in leading speakers in technology, entrepreneurship, investment, agriculture, science, and anything else you can think of and we can find in the world of ag tech. We'll look to demystify it so that we're getting to the so what. What does it really mean for farmers and for the broader agricultural industry? I'm
1: farming and I I'm farming and I Well, thanks for thanks for having me join yeah no
0: Shauna thanks so much for for joining the podcast we um are really looking forward to to talking to you about your your background and and what you're up to and um i, I love that you have you sort of grew up in an ag area but have a finance yeah. background and are now back in ag so one of these kind of translators across the the tech and yeah. the ag finance world um which i think is such a needed skill set
1: well i'm happy to happy to share that with uh with you guys as well so
0: Yeah, so maybe start with a little bit of an overview of of that background um, and how you've kind of gone from the finance
1: and and back to ag and finance. Yeah, so I spent, um, gosh, it's been about 15 years now in the technology investment banking landscape, Um, and, and as Sarah mentioned, by way of background, I grew up in a small ag town in the central part of California called Turlock. And my family has been in in this town for a long time. I'm fourth generation, and um, over the course of of our family history, um, we've had everything from grain trading to chickens and turkeys, and now um, almonds in in uh, production. It's yeah, relatively small operation, but um, still kind of nice to keep keep one foot in that world. And and um, and about three years ago. I had been banking in London and like I said, working with technology companies, did a lot of work in mobile wireless. And I'll come back to that in a couple of minutes, the, the significance of that. Um, and as a matter of fact, met my current business partner, Rob Trice about 10, 12 years ago in that that kind of part of my, of my life. And I was banking in London and woke up one day and decided I couldn't do another winter in, in London and really wanted to get back to California. And around that time, Monsanto had acquired Climate Corp for close to a billion dollars, and I think that really uh, opened a lot of people's eyes to the possibilities of technology and agriculture. And because I'd worked with so many tech companies, I spent a lot of time in in Silicon Valley. I worked in San Francisco at an investment bank for about uh, six or seven years. And um, my Silicon Valley friends were starting to get really excited about the possibility of technology disrupting agriculture and it wouldn't look the same in the next five to 10 years and robotics and all of this sort of promise um, that, and and dare I say hype, um, that that comes with that was very interesting to me, but I also sort of being grounded and still having family in the Central Valley wanted to kind of validate that, um, validate that, that view of the future. And so I decided to move from London back to Turlock just to see if there was a there there. And that was in 2014. And it became pretty clear pretty quickly that the perception of technology in the ag ecosystem, especially in in specialty crops here in California, was very different than just over the hill in Silicon Valley. And that's when I recognized that there was a really interesting opportunity to help build those, those bridges. And Serve as a little bit of a translation engine, um, having the benefit of being able to speak both ag and, and technology. Uh, that was a, a unusual skill set, and unfortunately, I think it still, to, to many extents, is an unusual skill set. Um, and but a great opportunity for me. So I started uh, I started working with more growers actually around that time, and really trying to understand where their needs were, where technology was falling short of promise. Um, what they were using, and it, it was sort of staggering to me. The not the lack of sophistication of the operators, certainly. You know, the growing the producers are very sophisticated in the way that they um, you know think about their businesses, but just um, the level of technology that was available to them was sort of like what we'd used in the '90s, um, and <laughs> that was that was something that was really. Uh, strange to me after working in such sort of high tech industries in the investment banking side. Um, so, you know, over the last three years or, or so, I spent kind of probably more time, um, uh, again, sort of helping technology people understand the real needs and making the introductions and helping connect them to the growers who uh, who are really interested in adopting those technologies. And on the other side, you know, helping create awareness within the ag community and, and among growers in terms of what's actually out there. Because one of the things I, I really noticed was the sales cycle to growers like, hey, you know, we'll we'll look at whoever knocks on our door. And if you're not in the ag industry, knocking on doors and getting growers to pay attention to you is really difficult. So a lot of times what you would see is that um, not the best of breed wouldn't necessarily be the one that was adopted because you know, they just happened to be the ones that showed up on the door at the right time, the right place, promising to to solve a problem. And you know, lo and behold, that problem was never really solved. So that grower's perception of that particular technology wasn't great. And the next time somebody came to their door, they didn't want to answer it. So there were these kind of friction, that kind of friction that it takes some overcoming. But again, that's about building awareness. And, and I guess I'd say over the past couple of years, or not even a couple of years, over the past six to nine months, the uh, appetite for having those conversations really seems to be shifting, at least in my my part of the world, the West Coast specialty crop world, where three years ago, there were definitely growers on the forefront, and they were interested in technologies, and maybe they were adopting some, but they were much fewer and further between, whereas now we're getting a lot more people knocking on our doors and saying, hey, help us figure out what our te- technology strategy is should look like we know that we don't know everything that's out there and we need somebody to help us figure out what's out there and what we we should be using and the volume of those discussions is becoming more and more uh frequent Yeah, and do you see a
0: difference in in progress? Do you see a difference in, I know you've been around the world and and definitely around the US as well, in the sort of Central Valley conversations versus elsewhere, because the Central Valley is so close to Silicon Valley and can have those conversations (laughs) in in a different way than you you might in, in somewhere else that doesn't have that kind of view
1: into the tech world so easily? It's so surprising to me because exactly what you just said is what you would think. However, um, a, a lot of aspects of the specialty market have been much slower to adopt technology, and versus the commodity row crops in the Midwest of the United States um, and other place, parts of the world where grains, um, corn, soy are grown, we've seen a lot more adoption of technology in those markets, and that was really really puzzling to me, particularly because the margins in specialty crops are so much higher. So you would think that there's more capital to spend on um, on technology and and robotics and automation. And that just doesn't didn't seem to be happening. And I think one of the reasons, one of the big reasons is fundamentally the size of those markets. So it sort of brings to into question the whole capital deployment strategy or capital deployment um, bias in, in the sort of ag tech market where. You've got traditional traditional institutional investors, venture capital investors, who are looking at these technologies and saying, great, really neat um, automation uh, technology, but how big is the actual market size? How many growers are there um, that will buy this product? Uh, and so you start in specialty, you know, here in California, I think we grow three or 400 crops. So you start to get these much, much smaller market opportunities, and I don't probably have to... Tell anybody that listens to this podcast the way that you grow and harvest a strawberry is very different from lettuce and almonds and citrus, um, and so the overlap between those technologies is, doesn't isn't hasn't really been great, and so consequently you have startups chasing these markets, but there's not enough capital to fund those because they don't recognize a large enough market opportunity. On the other <laughs> on the other hand, um, in sort of broadacre row crops, commodity crops, much bigger market opportunities instead of a couple hundred acres. You know, a big operation in California could be 1,500, 2,000, 3,000 acres. Um, a big operation in the Midwest of corn and, and soy is you know, thousands and thousands of acres. So it's just, you got much different market dynamics, and that's had a big impact on where I think the capital has flowed to the startups addressing those market opportunities. The long-winded way of answering your question is: there's been less, there's been less, a lot less adoption than I would have expected um, here in, in the west coast of California. Yeah, I think,
0: um, I, I think that is changing. I've seen that as well. And, and do you think that's a U.S. thing, or are you guys looking elsewhere? I mean, we have a lot of listeners in Australia. have obviously been based there. Do you do you think that that's a, you know, just specialty crops? Is it a geography thing? Is it U.S.? Thing like what what are you seeing I guess on a more global yeah. scale?
1: Yeah, um, so that's where I think proximity to Silicon Valley does indeed help. Um, and and I wouldn't even say Silicon Valley. I wouldn't I wouldn't isolate it to Silicon Valley because there are other I think really exciting ag tech hubs around the rest of the country in Illinois, Texas, um, North Carolina, and so. But I would say that proximity to those academic institutions research institutions hubs for technology innovation make the us somewhat unique and the kind of the flow of technology is maybe a little bit a little bit um i don't want to say seamless it's certainly not seamless but there's a little less friction um right. whereas let's say in latin america um, where you have enormous farming operations and you've got a couple of players and Side that have have, I think made some really good headway is you're just you don't have those same hubs and the same support system and the same sort of culture of innovation, and so I think that's been a little bit of an inhibitor to technology adoption. And we see we see that with with Brazil, for example, where we're seeing more and more Brazilian um, sort of scouts, alcum scouts, whether they're corporate scouts or farming operation scouts, coming up to the Bay Area or coming up to to the U.S and trying to source technologies to bring back to those places. So that's Latin America. Um, I think Europe has some really interesting dynamics and there are there are some good, strong pockets of innovation in Europe. France is doing a lot on the ag tech side. Ireland's doing a lot. Uh, UK has a couple of really interesting, particularly in the livestock technology side, obviously in Israel. Um, anything related to water management, again, sort of livestock. There's some interesting stuff going on. So there are again, sort of these pockets that um, the, these pockets that that have a very good support have very good support for ag tech ecosystems. But the reality is most of the capital is in the U.S., and so that's where companies tend to gravitate if they are at that stage that they're going to need growth capital to scale their businesses. So you know, it becomes then the question of do you follow the capital? Do you have a good local network of high net worth investors who can fund it? But at some stage, are you going to have to go shop your company in, in um, um, Sand Hill Road to kind of raise the type of money that you need to really build a globally scalable business? So I think that it just it, it putting my prior tech hat on that was a case not just in ag tech, that was a case kind of across the board in most technologies where. At, at some stage, they would look to the U.S. because that's where the capital was was flowing.
0: Yeah, right. And and I guess one one potential pushback there is that maybe venture capital isn't the right type for, for ag tech. And I imagine that's something you guys come across or, or have faced. What's your view on the suitability of, of VC for ag tech given needing to, to plant things and, and wait longer in some of these, you know, trials that have to take, more time in areas that you might not, you know, you might be doing something in a, in a crop that's not, you know, near Silicon Valley or not in the U S what's your, what's your view on sort of what's a good fit and, and what's not a good fit?
1: You're 100% spot on. I mean, I think, I think because this is quote unquote technology play, the temptation is to go that venture route, but the priorities and the financial return requirements of many venture funds do not align well with agriculture. Um, and so that's something that I think, even if you look at what's happening in the ag tech landscape now, we're feeling that play itself out, right? There was a lot of excitement in 2015, um, 2016, where big dollars were pouring into, um, especially in field technologies, And there maybe wasn't a full appreciation for the sales cycle of selling products into um, agriculture and to directly to growers. Um, There wasn't a full appreciation for, you know, look, in most cases you have one harvest a year and it's one chance to kind of pull your technology such that it. Um, you know, it, it does what it promises to do and you got your one harvest and that's your data point and you have to wait until next year. Of course, there's some fast return row crops like lettuce and things like that where you get a few more chances and in dairy, you get a you get a chance a couple times a day. But, but you know, for the most part, I think um, the venture community said, "Uh oh, this is taking a lot longer and it's a lot more complicated than we expected. And consequently now, I think you've seen a lot of sort of that capital drying up for those earlier stage companies who were maybe depending on um, having that readily available so that they could prove out their business model and start to um, really sort of scale into a sustainable business. Now that capital is no longer there and those companies are sort of left um, out in the desert. You know, there have, certainly there are financings that are still taking place and they're getting, they're larger and larger financing. So you're kind of having a separation in the market there. But to your point, Sarah, I think it's really made people uh, look around and say, is this the right type of capital for these business models? And in a lot of cases, no, it's not. Because you're just not going to see, you're fundamentally not going to see as many 10x, 100x returns. Um, because, like I said before, these are in some cases smaller market opportunities. This might not be a be a multi-billion dollar market opportunity where this company is trying to sell a particular type of robot into Um, you know, specialty crops or a particular type of sensor to monitor water use. Um, Yeah. yeah, It might be a multi-hundred million dollar one, but not a billion dollar one.
0: And so, I mean, you're now on the investment side as well. Actually, you know, making making investments in the space through through better food ventures. So, what is a good fit for you guys? Are Are you looking for that kind of ten x return as a traditional VC, or do you take a different approach? And and if you are, then what what is a good fit? How you know should companies know that yeah. they that they could go to you and that that would be a good option?
1: Yeah. So, I mean, we're we're in the midst of fundraising now. We've already done thirteen investments to date, and I think one of. One of our big um, one of the themes that we really stay focused on is capital efficiency and very much understanding. Um, the customer acquisition model and sort or how you scale that so are you trying to sell something directly to a grower or are you able to work through the channel. Um, retailers or other input providers to sort of uh, get more bang for your for your marketing sales and marketing dollar so we're really looking at those fundamentals very, very closely, um, I think. I like to think that we've got a good pulse on the market. I cover about oh, 1,500 or so ag tech companies um, with, with sort of the market mapping work that I do. And, you know, so so on one hand, I think we're very disciplined about that capital efficiency model and how we look at, at the routes to market. On the other hand, in our fundraising efforts, we are really, really trying to be conscious about um, – aligning our LP's interests with the realities of this market. So we're raising a $30 million fund. And the reason we're not raising a $300 million fund is because we feel like that's kind of where the market is right now um, in terms of, of opportunities that we can achieve the ty- types of returns that, that we think are reasonable in this market. The other thing we're doing is also um, fundraising from, from folks that we think have that kind of more patient capital um, and maybe a little bit sort of uh, a little bit different return objectives than maybe some of the traditional LPs that you would find in venture capital portfolios that are if investing in consumer technologies or investing in um, enterprise software or, or communications models. So it's just it's about finding the right investors um, for these for these transactions. And I think even when you're talking to angel investors, um, you know, it's very tempting to uh, get sort of to have farmers invest in the technologies. And I think there's 100% a place for that. And I want to see more of that. But I also think it's really important for companies to manage those expectations, because in a lot of cases, the you know, growers are used to investing in dirt or iron. And they're sort of more cash flow based models versus, uh, I would call it value creation models, where, you know, you're not going to see anything for 10 years, and you might you know, forget forget about the money that you put into that company. But in 10 years, yeah, that could be your 10x return. So just making sure that you're really educating um, or the investor is really educated in terms of what it is and what it is not, I think is is extremely important.
0: And and how's the capital raise going? Like are, are is the sort of excitement around ag that I think does this in the space feel all the time something yeah. that you're
1: seeing from the investment community as well? We are. You know, the exciting part about this is even it's some days it feels like I've been doing this forever and other days it feels like this has been a world world whirlwind but um in the kind of four years that I've really been heads down focusing on this um pretty exclusively I I mentioned it before but in the last year the number of people starting to lean in and say hey this isn't a this isn't a fad you know this is sort of the the intersection of technology and agriculture is is something that is very much here to stay and people are starting to rethink their organizations people are definitely rethinking their operations how do they staff them Um, how can they leverage technology to reduce their risk i think risk is one of the big topics that if you're outside of the industry it might not resonate quite as much but if you're within the ag industry food and ag and thinking about your supply chain risk thinking about your resource management risk you're thinking about all of these things that can be significantly um, managed through technologies, uh, you just are smarter about your your sort of exposure in your business. Those are the levers that people are starting to say, "Oh yeah, okay, we need to we need to be investing in in um, either companies or people who can identify and, and diligence those companies on our behalf." So. I'm I'm pleased to say that the fundraising is, is going well. You know, it's, it's uh, it always takes time, but it's going well, and the, and the timing for us feels right now um, because of our story, because of kind of our I think we've got a, a pretty interesting um, uh, position with sort of me in the Central Valley covering all things ag tech, and then our partner Britta Rosenheim, uh, based out of out of Manhattan, covering all things food tech, and then Michael Rose and and Rob Trice who are really seasoned. Um, corporate executives and, and corporate venture guys. So we've got a nice mix, I think, that gives us great deal flow and um, and sort of a thoughtful <laughs> approach because we're, well, at least I can speak for myself here in, in the central part of California. I'm kind of on the ground, um, really understanding where the challenges are. And then I can match that up to, to kind of the companies that we're seeing come through the pipeline.
0: Yeah, I mean, I've loved um, y- how you guys do do that kind of like boots on the ground work in, in the conferences you run, but in the, you know, getting out in different areas and doing the market map and adding value to the ecosystem. So I think it's a really um, sort of friendly model in the sense of trying to build this space and increase awareness around it. So I've really appreciated seeing that from you guys and, and working on a bit of it with you. Um, I wanted to ask just you personally, do you ever find yourself wanting to be on the entrepreneur? our side? Like, do you, do you get the itch to start one of these companies and, and, and jump ship?
1: Uh, no, <laughs> it's really hard. I have a tremendous amount of respect for the companies that we, that we work in and we invest in and boy, um, the heartbreak and the, you know, the ups and downs are, I just, I don't know if I could do it. I love helping them, but boy, I don't know if I could sit in their in their shoes. Um, having said that, I actually have had a, had a couple of, um, a couple of of opportunities to be a part of, of the kind of more of the operation side. And I've, I've enjoyed them very, very much, but all roads keep leading back to sort of financial lens for me. Uh, And and at some point, I guess, in your career, you kind of, uh, you kind of say, okay, the world's trying to tell me something I should, I should respond accordingly. So I'm extremely grateful. I had a a brief stint, um, co-founding a, Wine importing business, looking at um, uh, Argentine wines at the time, and the portfolio's grown since then. And that was back during the two thousand and eight, two thousand and nine period when investment banking all but dried up because, as we all know, there was a little bit of a capital crisis around the world. And so that afforded me a really amazing opportunity to, like I said, co-found this, this business with um with a business partner and and we sourced some awesome wines from from Argentina and um, marketed them in the U.S. and built a nice little business. And I got to drink a bunch of wine for about a year and a half. And then it was time to get back to get back to investment banking. So between that and, and I ran operations and restructuring for a, a large um, software consolidator for about a year and a half. And that was a really instructive opportunity for me to sit on the other side of the table and really understand operations and, and operations management. And so being able to kind of bring that lens back into the work that I do now has been has been, I think, a, a huge value add for for me and hopefully for the companies that I work with. But um, yeah, I think I think I get just the right amount of entrepreneurial exposure with with what I'm doing now, but I don't know. If, I don't know that I'd ever jump across the table again.
0: <laughs> well n- never say never i suppose but but yeah that sounds never like say you. <laughs> never
1: exactly, exactly. <laughs> you found far,
0: you like i guess just in the market you um we've emailed back and forth a little bit recently on on dairy tech and on livestock what are areas that you're excited about or that you guys at, at better food are excited about in terms of investing like where where's uh, somewhere that you think people should should be looking or maybe areas where they they shouldn't be looking
1: yeah great question so i am gonna do a little plug for livestock tech because I've just spent about the last three or four months doing a really deep dive. And it, it actually started off with a collaboration with the Innovation Center for U.S. Dairy, uh, some conversations with them and just talking about how dairy technology was perceived where the adoption curve is in dairy technology, where what's working, what's not working. And it led to this really intriguing deep dive where I, I've done dozens of interviews with producers and folks in the support network around the dairy complex. I'll use broadly livestock technology, but this kind of ended up going more in the direction of dairy technology. Um, but it, it, uh, I came up with about 120 companies. Um, and, and take a step back. So my coverage area... It, within the agtech landscape is sort of in-field and post-harvest. So in-field automation, robotics, sensors, I- imagery—you um, know, sort of anything that hardware, software applications that are used in the field—and then post-harvest supply chain, logistics, um, B2B marketplaces, trading, and finance technology. So everything that kind of runs into about distribution. And then my partner, Britta Rosenheim picks up at the distribution point and covers all things consumer-facing in in food technology. So food media, meal delivery kits, restaurant technology, um, sort of anything consumer-facing. So with that as a backdrop, my livestock technology landscape uh, uh, overview was really, you know, what are people using within the dairy complex up until about the milk parlor. Um, And then from that point, the processing side I didn't get into that. And I didn't really get into the genetics too deeply um, or nutrients or additives. So that's kind of the the backdrop of, of what I was focused on. But I was fascinated by, so on one hand, dairy technology, livestock technology faces the same sort of uh, infrastructure challenges that we see in the rest of agriculture, you know, lack of data standards. Um no common operating system, a lot of fragmentation, et cetera, et cetera. But on the other hand, what, I guess I, at some level, I knew this. I just didn't put the pieces together. The level of technology in the dairy complex has been pretty, pretty advanced. As you know, if you compare it to other parts of even, you know, something like wearable that's been around for quite some time robotics in the dairy in the milk parlor have, have been around. So you know dairy technology is, the dairymen are, and, and dairy producers, I think, are very much open to technology that works and that drives some value, of course, but it's a, it's maybe not as, as challenging of a sale. Um, the other thing that I, I found really sort of intriguing about dairy technology is, and again, sort of lack of better words, it's ability to, one, a technology company's ability to A-B test. I mean, you're getting two or three milkings a day, you know, 365 days a year. And so, to the extent you can fine tune your technologies, you know, if they're if they're measuring different things and in, um, in the sort of dairy workflow, you've got much more chances to understand how a tweak here or tweak there might impact um, right. the performance of your technology. So I think that's something that was really interesting. And then the other thing is just the size of the market. You know, I talked about in specialty, you've got these very small fragmented markets and it's hard to attract capital and, and sort of companies to focus on them. Dairy is huge. Um, and by and large, you know, there are different ways that people run their operations, certainly, but the kind of basics, basic workflow is fairly similar where just, you know, wherever you are in, in the world. So um, I think those are things that people should consider when they're looking at opportunities in this broader ag tech landscape, whether you're an investor or an entrepreneur that's looking for some white space. Um, I think that there are that, – that's maybe a, a part of the market that's been overlooked. So I'm, I'm excited and interested about around that right now. I am particularly interested in some of the categories of post-harvest and supply chain analytics. Um, we kind of had traceability 1.0, I think, uh, some years back, and, and the next generation of food safety, tracking, and tracing is, is, some, is interesting We've got some enabling technologies now with blockchain that I think are going to be uh, really game changers there. That's something to keep an eye on. Um, We're starting to see more activity around kind of trading and finance, maybe more creative trading and and finance platforms. You've seen Farmers Business Network um, have a play there. Again, blockchain could be a really interesting enabling technology around getting um, you know, getting farmers paid more quickly and and the authenticity of those of those payment flows. So, um, yeah, that's that's I would say where I'm spending a bit of of my time right now. Uh, and then, of course, in automation as well. I think the the sensors and the vision systems and the technologies around robotics and automation are starting to come down in price. The pain of labor is becoming more and more acute, especially here on the west coast of, of the US. And so I think we'll, we'll start to see um, more adoption in that category over the next you know, couple of years. So I'm excited about what's going on uh, in that part as well.
0: Awesome. Look, I think that's so that's such a um, two things there. One, the view on actual spaces and and where to be looking and then the concept of white space, but also how you think about that in terms of the iterations you can get, in terms of the size of the market, in terms of willingness to adopt and sort of tech saturation and tech familiarity. I think those are really like to you in the investment world, obvious in how you think about the space, but not really lenses that I hear put on opportunities and and really how to think about this space very frequently. So I think that's a really important insight for both entrepreneurs and and investors uh, and and probably farmers to be thinking about as well in terms of what they're what they're gonna see and experience. so uh, and and I love that it's such a positive view that there are so many opportunities uh, in in the space. so, I think we might, we might leave it there, Sean. I, I really appreciate you coming on the, the podcast and sharing both your personal background and, and what you guys are up to and, and some opportunities in this space. I think it's, it's really exciting. And I love what you guys have been doing. Where can people find more about, about what you've been doing, some of the, the market maps and, and investments, where should they be looking to, to learn more?
1: Yeah. So um, our investment uh, fund is called better food ventures. Uh, like I said, we're currently in the fundraising process now, but you can check our, our existing portfolio, betterfoodventures.com and then the landscape maps are available at the mixing bowl hub uh, or sorry mixing bowl hub and that is both the the ag tech landscape and the food tech landscape and we've got an event coming up in new york on march 22nd forbes mixing bowl Bowl nyc and i'm going to be rolling out the livestock technology landscape um, and doing kind of a cool panel around that in that event so Look for the livestock tech landscape after the 22nd um, on, on mixingbowlhub.com. We also publish them through Forbes.com. So I know I've thrown a lot of .coms out, but uh, <laughs> those are the places you can find find our information.
0: Fantastic. Well, thanks again so much, Anna, and look forward to learning more about livestock in, in a couple me. weeks. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Bush Tech Podcast. We'd love to hear what you think. If you have feedback, suggestions for future guests or technologies or topics you want us to cover, you can find us at bushtechpodcast.com.au. I hope you found it enjoyable. Until next time, see ya. See ya.